Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move and here's your need to know. Embassy exits the US and UK withdrawing non-essential staff from Ukraine. COVID loop crack, the Beijing Olympics suffers more COVID cases and Peloton's puncture. The beleaguered bike maker suffers another PR blow. It's Monday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move, as always, and another busy show ahead. The tensions on the Ukraine border front and centre this morning. And I think that's feeding into broader market sentiment too. Stock market futures currently near session lows, with tech set to fall some 1.5%. This after a feeble Friday that saw the Nasdaq tumble 2%. Can Microsoft and Apple's earnings this week shore up some support for the index? We shall see. The S&P 500 also suffering its third straight weekly drop as investors monitor those tensions, as well as ongoing uncertainty, I think, over Federal Reserve monetary tightening. Goldman Sachs analysts are now anticipating at least four rate hikes this year, with tightening action a real possibility at every meeting in 2022. The likelihood of less Fed support helping worsen the ongoing crypto crunch too. It's everywhere you look. Bitcoin falling to six-month lows and currently trading below $35,000 per Bitcoin, significantly below, as you can see, 33220 the current level. The wider crypto market has lost some $1 trillion in value since November of last year. Now, speaking of value lost, and I've already mentioned it, Peloton suffering another streaming series blow, a billions character falling ill after a round of spinning cardio. More on that and activist investor action in Peloton coming up shortly. And it's a soft start to the trading week across the European markets too. Take a look at the price action there. New data showing Eurozone business activity growing at its slowest rate in almost a year as Omicron restrictions weigh. Ukraine, I'll reiterate it once again, clearly impacting sentiment in the session over there. Much to discuss and we'll get to the latest there in our drivers. The United States and the UK have announced the withdrawal of non-essential personnel from their embassies in Ukraine. For the moment, the European Union is keeping its staff in place. It comes as President Joe Biden mulls boosting troop levels in Eastern Europe too. We've got John Harwood over in Washington and Matthew Chant joining us from Kiev too. Gentlemen, good morning. John, I'll come to you first. Um, Obviously, we've seen um, a removal announced of um, non-essential personnel in the embassy. Just talk us through whether something specific perhaps has precipitated that, despite the State Department and, of course, the White House saying nothing has. Well, I think the United States government still believes that uh, Vladimir Putin has not made the decision as to whether or not he's going to launch another invasion of Ukraine. Uh, But the longer he leaves troops bristling on the Ukrainian border, uh, the more preparations that the United States and its allies feel it necessary to do. And so uh, the withdrawal of the non-essential personnel is part of it. The potential for deploying up to 5,000 U.S. troops in NATO countries in Eastern Europe is another. Uh, You know, the... um, 
nobody wants in this situation to simply be standing around on their back foot and waiting for Vladimir Putin to decide. And so they're trying to lean forward a little bit and uh, let him know that uh, preparations are being made and uh, reassure allies, uh, particularly the Ukrainians, that uh, there's going to be a robust response uh, if anything happens. Yeah, preempt aggression at this stage. Uh, Matthew, come in here because the Russians are pointing to broader hysteria among NATO and the allies. And even the Ukrainian response here seems to be um, concern that this withdrawal of non-essential staff isn't perhaps met with greater defence. Yeah, I mean, the Ukrainians aren't, aren't particularly happy with it because um, they think, and this is the words of the, the foreign ministry spokesperson who tweeted about this and issued a statement earlier, that the step is premature uh, and one of an instance of excessive caution. And so they, they point out to the fact that the security situation uh, on the border when you know, with regard to the tens of thousands of Russian troops that have, that have been gathered there has not deteriorated or even changed significantly in the past several days. And so um, they think that this um, message by the US State Department to um, allow its non-essential staff to leave voluntarily and to order the families of diplomats out of the country um, you know, sends the message that the country is you know, on the brink of a Russian invasion. And it, it, of course, it could well be. But the Ukrainians have been you know, doing whatever they can to try and play that down. Um, and, and one of the reasons for that is that they believe that this is having a massively detrimental effect on the investment climate in the country. They're saying that they've lost billions of dollars in potential foreign investment in the country. And they're also saying they don't really believe, and this is sort of privately, they're saying they don't really believe that Russia would take that step of coming in again you know, when there's all those you know, potential sanctions uh, that would, would befall it uh, and, you know, occupy, you know, vast swathes of, of, of the country. They, they're they saying that they think it is a bluff and, and that the, the West and, and the NATO should not give in to it. Yeah, John, it's an interesting one, isn't it, in terms of response? Um, do you talk about sanctions rather than perhaps withdrawing personnel. So you're showing an element of strength and that the response is there without actually taking action that looks like you're anticipating some kind of, of conflict or broader invasion. John, I'm asking you for your opinion here. Do you think this would have happened, this announcement this weekend, if it weren't perhaps for the confusion that was created by President Biden that we talked about last week over what the US response would be in the event of some form of action from Russia? I do, Julia. I think the um, uh, discussion of that confusion has been exaggerated. Uh, yes, the president did both uh, predict that uh, Vladimir Putin will move in some way, and he talked about the gradation of U.S. responses, depending on uh, whether he, he used the words minor incursion, which did cause some uh, confusion. But if you step back and uh, remember that this is what U.S. diplomats, national security officials have been saying privately, uh, everyone understands that there are there's cyber attacks, there's paramilitary attacks, in addition to direct troop incursions across the border. Uh, so it is unlikely that Vladimir Putin learned anything from Joe Biden's response that he didn't already know. 
Uh, so I don't think that these were a response to that. On Matthew's point about the Ukrainians, it's very interesting. There seems to be a little bit of uh, psychological gamesmanship here because you did also have that report over the weekend uh, from the British saying that the Russians were preparing uh, or had selected a, a pro-Russian uh, leader for a new Ukraine if, in fact, they seize control of the country. Uh, there, there is clearly an attempt by both sides to uh, indicate to the other uh, uh, what steps they might take and try to um, uh, dissuade, in the case of the uh, U.S. and allies, dissuade Russia from acting by putting all this on the table ahead of time. Yes. We shall see how this week plays out. John, Matthew, thank you both for that. The closed loop cracked. Beijing reports six new COVID cases among people attached to the Winter Olympics. And the Olympic Committee says two of them tested positive inside its closed loop system. Selena Wang joins us with the latest on this. Uh, uh-oh, would be my response. What more do we know about who tested positive, who they've been in contact with and what the authorities' response has been? Well, Julia, the reality is that as we get closer and closer to the games, we're just going to continue to see more positive COVID cases. They're expecting around 11,000 arrivals in Beijing. So far, less than 4,000 participants have arrived. Of those six new cases reported on Sunday, one of them was an Olympic athlete or team official, and two of them were already inside this closed-loop system, which is this giant Olympic bubble. Now, these numbers so far are low, but the question is, given how transmissible Omicron is, can Beijing continue to stop the infections in their tracks? The other question is that as we get closer to competition, how many athletes may have to withdraw from competing because of a positive case? Any participant who's a confirmed positive case has to immediately go into isolation at a facility if they're asymptomatic or at a hospital if they have symptoms. But these games, they are going to be held under the strictest COVID-19 countermeasures in the world. These rules and restrictions go far beyond what we saw during the Tokyo Summer Olympics. And all participants are going to be inside this closed-loop system that is essentially several bubbles of Olympic hotels and venues connected by dedicated transport. And the goal here is to keep the Olympic participants completely separate from the rest of the population the entire time. And Julia, the rules are so strict, in fact, that Beijing police have told residents not to help if they see Olympic cars involved in a crash in order to prevent breaching of the bubble. Authorities say there is a special medical team to handle those accidents. And the host city right now not taking any chances outside of that bubble as well. The host city is reporting a handful of cases each day, and they're trying to stamp out every last one. Beijing authorities asking any resident who has purchased cough or fever medication in the past 14 days to immediately get a COVID-19 test. If they do not do so, it will prevent them from traveling or going to public places. And this is already sparking outrage on Chinese social media. People saying this is ruining their Lunar New Year plans to see their relatives, all because they bought some fever or cough medicine. And this, just the latest example of China doubling down on its zero COVID strategy. So as we see these Olympic participants arriving, many of them are going to be quite shocked by the rules and restrictions they see in Beijing. But for many residents in China, that is just the reality they've been dealing with for the past two years, Julia. Yeah, it's an astonishing level of control, isn't it? And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this will be like, hang on a second, how do they know that these people have even bought cough medicine in order to force them to to have to do a test and to take these extra measures? Um, Yes, to your broader point, though, I think we're going to see more of this as we head closer to the Olympics. Selena Wang, thank you for that.
Peloton sweating over a new PR nightmare and investors. Another TV show character has suffered a heart attack while using the embattled company's exercise bike. Spoiler alert, fans of the show Billions, who haven't watched the season six premiere, look away or at least perhaps put your fingers in your ears. Paula Monica is um, on the story for us. So this is not Billions now jumping on the uh, the story bandwagon because they say their scenes were filmed first um, before the Sex and the City uh, disaster, of course, for, for Peloton too. But it comes at an awful time given management strategy and, and pricing and manufacturing strategies being questioned. Yeah, this is just another PR headache for a company, Julia, that has had several uh, right now. And it is amusing as it sounds like they in post-production added a reference to uh, the Mr. Big Sex the City uh, Peloton uh, disaster, if you will. I think the company is just going to face increased pressure to prove to Wall Street that it can be a viable standalone business. And you're starting to see activist shareholders now coming in and pressing for the company to make big changes, namely for the CEO to be fired and for the company to potentially look at uh, being taken over by a larger entity. Is it, I mean, this is quite interesting, isn't it? Do, what do we know about the activist investor Blackwell's Capital? Because I, I have to admit, I had to Google this morning when I saw that they were involved. And don't the CEO and other insiders have a super majority of voting shares? So it's tough for an activist investor really to force change unless things get dramatically worse, as bad as they are for the stock. Um, and who might buy them? Yeah, these are great questions, Julia. Blackwell's Capital has about a 5% or so, a little less than 5% stakes. You're right. Given the structure of the company, unless Blackwell's is able to get a lot more support from other uh, institutional investors, uh, you know, they may not be able to force the company to make changes. But if the stock continues to plummet and it does seem like a takeover might make sense, Blackwell's is suggesting companies like Apple, Disney, Sony, Nike, all could be good fits. You know, Apple and Sony, obviously consumer electronics giants, Disney, which has ESPN, even though that seems to be, uh, you know, a trouble spot for the company that there could be a potential fit there on the sports uh, side. And then obviously Nike seems to be a no brainer as a athleisure giant because of all the athletic apparel that they sell. Uh, you know, I'm not sure any of these will wind up happening, but hey, we've seen with Activision Blizzard selling to Microsoft, companies in distress usually are on sale and you will wind up having a buyer come in at the right price. Yeah, I was about to say, if the price is right. Hmm. Paula Monica, thank you so much for that. Okay, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. Police in Germany say a young man with a gun has wounded several people at the University of Heidelberg. Authorities tell CNN the suspect is now dead, but it's unclear how he died or how many people were injured. They say it's too early to determine a motive. We will bring you any further reports on that as we get them. Taiwan says China flew 13 warplanes near its airspace on Monday. It happened a day after Beijing sent 39 aircraft toward the island, the largest exercise of its kind this year. At the weekend, the U.S. and Japan conducted naval exercises near Taiwan, which China regards as part of its territory. The UAE says it's intercepted two ballistic missiles targeting Abu Dhabi on Monday. It says it also destroyed a missile launcher used by Yemen Houthi rebels. Houthis have claimed responsibility for the assault as well as last week's deadly drone attack on oil assets. 
The UAE says it will take all necessary measures to protect itself. WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange has won the right to try and appeal to the UK Supreme Court against extradition to the United States. Assange faces espionage charges in the US for his role in publishing thousands of classified military and diplomatic cables. In December, the British High Court said that Assange could be extradited based on assurances from the US about how he would be treated. Organisers of the Australian Open are defending their decision to stop a small protest over the alleged mistreatment of Chinese player Pong Shuai. Officials say they banned the use of banners and T-shirts that asked about Pong's whereabouts because they were political. But they say they're concerned about the safety of Pong, who temporarily disappeared last year after accusing a Chinese official of sexual assault. Still to come here on First Move. Tackling COVID while shoring up the economy, the president of Colombia joins us to discuss the next critical healthcare and economic steps for the nation. And a very special NFT auction led by female artists. Two women behind the project join us to showcase the works. Stay with us, that's all coming up. Welcome back to First Move. A new report from Oxfam is highlighting just how extreme inequality has become during the pandemic, finding that the wealth of the world's 10 richest men has doubled, while 99% of humanity are worse off. According to the report, those 10 men have six times more wealth than the poorest 3.1 billion people. And if they were to lose 99.999% of their wealth tomorrow, they would still be richer than 99% of the people on the planet. Joining us now, Gabriella Boucher, the executive director of Oxfam International. Gabriella, thank you for your time this morning. Um, we often talk about inequality, particularly at this time of year. But in terms of what we've seen over the last two years as a result of the pandemic, an incredible accelerant for worse. Yes, yes, absolutely. And thanks, Julia, for having me. Um, yes, the, the figures this year are, are really stark. And of course, the last 14 years have shown a cum accumulation at the top um, wealth accumulation of the world's billionaires. But during the pandemic, this has grown exponentially. And it's, uh, as we've been calling it, a billionaire bonanza. Uh, one billionaire created every 26 hours during the pandemic. While at the other end of the spectrum, of course, we know huge um, devastation and 99% of humanity is worse off. And 160 million, according to the World Bank, are unfortunately being pushed into poverty. And our report this year is called Inequality Kills because there's a strong correlation between these extreme levels of inequality and, and deaths that can be associated with, with this. Yeah, and we'll talk in more depth about that. But as, to your point, it is an astonishing statistic, and I think it highlights much of the distortions created by the government and the central bank responses to the crisis, however important they, they were at the time, um, when you're trying to float some boats or all boats, some float better than others. Um, I also read this week that the nation's, the United, the United States' biggest givers have donated a total of $169 billion over the course of their lifetime. Um, it's an incredible amount of money, but to your point, I think, the hope is that people, whoever they are, how wealthy they are, can give more. Yes. So it's obviously, you know, generous and important to recognize donations made. And, right. and it's traditionally, um, you know, philanthropy is 
normally part of, of many uh, wealthy individuals' uh, way of life, but philanthropy is really a small amount, and, and the issue is that it is voluntary and, and ad hoc, so it doesn't address some of these systemic issues. So as you were saying, when governments uh, gave the rescue packages, the rich governments primarily, uh, to support the economists, they, they supported financial markets, and, and in the end, because the economy is skewed in such a way, much of that um, incentive, uh, economic incentive, went to line in the pockets of billionaires. Again, their asset uh, grew in value, the stock market boomed. So because the economy is skewed in that way, even when you're supporting the general population, it tends to be skewed towards supporting the richest. And part of this, and, and you and I were on a panel together last week at the, the World Economic Forum that was talking about tackling vaccine inequity. And you're incredibly passionate about the, the damage that's being done similarly with richer nations and the power they have relative to the poorer nations. We're in a situation now where some countries are giving out fourth doses and three quarters of healthcare workers in Africa not had one dose yet. Yes, absolutely. So inequality between countries has grown for the first time in a generation. So we were going in the opposite direction, but unfortunately, vaccines have been a major driver. The fact that there's such unequal access for growing inequality between countries. And as you're saying, so Africa as a whole has a 10% vaccination rate at the moment on, on average. Some countries are at below 0.5%, so virtually unvaccinated. And at the other end of the spectrum, uh, in the rich world, as you were saying, we're in third or fourth doses. So, so the inequities are huge. And, and the problem is, well, this is the, the, the inequality of the world. But in the case of, of the pandemic, it's strange that we, we're not reconsidering the model when it has been really challenged so strongly. Because if we continue doing things in this way, clearly we, we are a globalized world, a globalized economy. But when it comes to addressing issues such as a pandemic, there's a sort of reverting back to as if it wasn't a globalized world. So the rich world has been hoarding vaccines and also rich governments have been protecting monopoly control over vaccines um, that are, are held in, in companies in the rich world. You often say that, the, the monopolies that are restricting vaccine supply. You've pointed to breaking those monopolies as a way perhaps that we end the pandemic or transition out of this phase of the pandemic. Gabriella, what do you mean by monopolies and the business model? How do we break the model that we're in, as you said, and that if something like a pandemic doesn't knock us out of the, the model that operates globally, what does? Yes, exactly. So this is a moment to rethink. And, and we have been part of, of a group um, uh, calling for, for vaccine equity, the People's Vaccine Alliance. So thinking of a vaccine as, as a global good. And this is not new. For example, the inventor of the polio vaccine, John Salk, decided to be remembered in terms of lives saved rather than billions made. So those are decisions that have been made. And at times of crisis or war or pandemic, one can rethink. And, and clearly we are now entering the third year of the pandemic. The World Health Organization is saying, you know, we're not out of it. We, each time we, we come out of a variant and we think this is over. And, and But in reality, new variants may come. And the more unvaccinated people there are, the more likely this is. And, and that's 
one of the reasons there is also a self-interest to doing things differently. Um, so, so nobody benefits from this hoarding of, of vaccines. You may benefit short term, but in reality, the risk remains. So um, there is a provision to lift intellectual property rights um, if the World, Health, World um, Trade Organization could agree. So it needs a consensus of all countries to lift intellectual property rights on uh, vaccines during the pandemic. And it should be for this pandemic and future pandemics so that there can be a much faster economic recovery because production would be uh, ramped up um, all over the world. And, oh. and there is a lot of experience in, in vaccine production in developing countries. So in reality, most vaccines are produced in developing countries. Most other vaccines, the ones used for, for childhood vaccinations. I mean, you, all you need really is an agreement from some of the big farmers to say we're not going to enforce the patent protections that we have or the intellectual property rights that we have on these vaccines. And I know Moderna's sort of suggested that they won't do that with a, with a hub in Africa. Gabriella, what's the probability? What are the chances that we get some kind of agreement on that to allow vaccines to be produced all over the world, at least addressing some of the issues so, that are being faced? So one, the vac as you're saying, um, uh, pharmaceutical companies could decide to share their recipes or their vaccine technology. And the World Health Organization has set up um, vaccine um, technology transfer hubs, one in South Africa. So at the moment, they are um, sort of reverse engineering the Moderna vaccine because the information hasn't been shared. And it's a bit like the, the wheel was invented, the wheel that can take us out of the pandemic, but we're letting people reinvent the wheel for however long it takes. So it doesn't, not, not you know, common sense would be let's get out of this together. So the, the pharmaceutical companies could do that, but also governments can, can force the, the sharing of intellectual property rights governed by the World Health Organization to ensure the quality and, and adequate uh, distribution. At the moment, what we have is COVAX, the mechanism to donate. Um, so one billion doses have been donated with all sorts of, of difficulties, also having bought them at, at very high prices. prices and, and also, unfortunately, donations are sometimes not of the best quality and they, they arrive near their, their date of um, expiry. So that reduces trust in that system. So a system to overhaul and to really consider um, getting vaccines available to all in this pandemic and any future pandemic, because we, we need to collaborate and, and really make it a, a global common good. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to address in this pandemic, but you're right, we need the stones in place so that we never operate this way again. Gabriella, um, I appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for joining the show. Fingers crossed we can improve Thank this year. Too. Thank you. Yes, let's the hope so. Open. Yeah. The market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and to Colombia now, where the government is taking steps to address the latest COVID challenges, including aiming to vaccinate more than 80 percent of its population. That's a raised target and tightening up the period between initial shots and boosters. It's also taking measures to support the economic recovery, including a rise in the minimum wage. It all comes as the country is gearing up for crucial presidential elections in May of this year. And I'm pleased to say joining us now is Ivan Duque. He's the president of Colombia. Mr. President, fantastic to have you on the show once again and, and Happy New Year. I want to talk about economic recovery because you're forecasting an incredibly strong growth rate in 2022, resilience in the face of COVID challenges. Walk me through what you're seeing and forecasting. 
Thank you so much, uh, Julia, for having me again in your show. It's a great honor. And let me begin by saying that Colombia has shown the world its resilience, as you well said. Last year, we're getting close to a 10% growth, which is uh, the largest growth Colombia has ever reached in more than 100 years. That makes us uh, very happy. And we expect this year to grow above 5%. And we'll be one of the economies that will grow the most in Latin America and the Caribbean. And the important thing is that we're doing this with massive vaccination. We're reaching 80% of the population with one dose, more than 60% with double dose. And we already have more than 5 million people that have received the booster shots. So we expect that by the end of February, we should be above 70% with double dose. And we want to be growing very fast with the vaccination on booster shots, especially for the population that are under high risk. And something I also want to highlight, uh, Julia, is that this growth and this recovery has enabled many sectors. We are having today a revolution in the energy transition. We're expanding from 28 megawatts to more than 2,800 megawatts, the capacity of non-conventional renewables. And we have reached record highs in sales on low-income housing we have also reached what is uh, the most important real increase in the minimum wage in Colombia that has helped us to protect the social safety net. So we feel very proud that massive vaccination and sustainable recovery are the elements of this growth. Well, there's so much to discuss there. Very quickly, um, when do you see an end to the current peak in terms of COVID and how quickly do you think you can get 80% of the population vaccinated? Well, we, we expect to have maybe the, the double dose, uh, 80%, maybe by the end of March. Wow. And uh, because, you know, Colombia is a big country and it, we, we have a very dispersed country in a, in a big territory. We have more than one million square kilometers, but we're accelerating this path. And I think people are being conscient enough that through massive vaccination, we can keep on handling the economic recovery. We're now facing the challenges of the Omicron, and we know that this challenge is big, but I think although we have seen some increase in lethality rates in recent days, the lethality rate is pretty much below what we saw in the third peak. So why is this happening? I think it's happening because we have reached massive vaccination and something that is also very important. We decided that it was more important by the end of last year to expand the booster shots, especially when we saw people that are under, under uh, elements of, of uh, higher risk that should receive the booster in order to minimize lethality rates at the beginning of 2022. So I think that strategy worked. We have already reached 5 million people with the booster shot. We expect to get to 10 million people with the booster shot in a matter of eight weeks. And I think that is also an additional protection. And this is helping us to keep on motivating investment, keep on motivating the expansion of uh, labor force in our country. And I think this, this goes hand in hand with the idea that this year we will have maybe the biggest economy in Latin America in terms of economic growth. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And, and your inward investment and your encouraging of inward investment makes you an outlier, I know, in the region. Um, let's talk about inflation and, and some of the risks, though, potentially that economic outlook, because the central bank is, is concerned, perhaps, that as good as raising minimum, the minimum wage is, uh, it's good for people in the formal sector. Obviously, it doesn't benefit many people who work in the, in the informal sector, and it could add to some of the inflation concerns. And people are already, obviously, facing rising food prices and energy prices among other things, how concerned are you about perhaps some of the risks to the growth outlook from 
activities that the central bank has to do just to tamper down on, on rising prices? Well, let me begin by saying that the inflation phenomenon at this moment is a global phenomenon. I think it has been affected by, by some of the damage that have been produced in global value chains and in the cost of logistics and also in the availability of containers. You know, this is a global phenomenon. Nevertheless, what is important is that Colombia had one of the lowest inflations in Latin America last year. Although it was high compared to recent years, our inflation rate was around 5.6. But our economic growth was above 9.7%, and it could be getting close to 10%. That puts us in a much better shape than other countries that had a growth that was below 5%, but they had inflation rates about 6 or 7 The second important element to, to highlight is that in terms of real interest rates, today the interest rate is below the inflation rate. That also makes Colombia a very attractive country and helps to have that dynamized credit, especially in sectors that have an aggregated value like the housing sector. And we expect the central bank to keep on, on handling the policy of inflation target. But I think we have to consider that since this is an external phenomenon, the increase of interest rates has to be done in a way that it doesn't limit or affects the dynamism of economic growth. So we have to balance two things. And one thing that you mentioned about the minimum wage increase, we had the biggest real uh, increase in, 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 in real terms last year was around 10%, but the inflation rate was 5.6. So it was about 5, 4%. Why was this so important, socially speaking? Because the worker class, were the ones who were behind this economic growth. So we had to give a, give a share, and especially considering that they were badly affected in 2020. And I think that the social safety net that we have created in Colombia has made us expand from less than 4 million beneficiaries of the subsidies program to almost 10 million people. This has kept the, the lowest uh, income communities having the possibility to buy and to dynamize the economy. And we're also having this policy this year. So yes, we're conscious about the inflation phenomenon, but I think we have been able to handle with a very robust and transparent technical policy approach. Um, President Duque, I know you want to talk about environmental policy and um, some of the focus that you've done on that, which I'm going to talk to you about. But I also want to talk to you about the presidential elections, and I'm I'm running out of time, so you have to promise to come on and speak to me um, before the end of your term, and then we'll talk about environmental um, policies. Um, I know you've just passed the Climate Action Bill. There's obviously a reliance on your country on the oil sector, and you've been critical, I think, in fostering inward investment to the sector. How do you balance that? and the reliance of government receipts on, on tax revenues with a push to be cleaner and some of your targets on, on the environment front? Because I know it's a delicate balance and you're trying to achieve it. Well, I think there are three very important elements, Julia, and I try to mention them very quickly. The most important is that Colombia is having the fastest uh, energy transition in Latin America. When my administration began, we only had 28 megawatts of non-conventional renewables. Today, we're heading to have 2,800 megawatts by the end of this year. That's 100 times more than we had when my administration began. And that will put us in a situation where we'll have an energy matrix that is more than 85% renewable. So that makes Colombia the leader of the energy transition in Latin America. The second element that is very important is that we approved the, the, the energy bill that 
increases this, this uh, non-conventional renewable energies, but it goes hand in hand with the Climate Action Bill. And we have said that we want to be carbon neutral by 2050, reduced by 51% of our CO2 emissions in 2030. And something that is very important, Julia, this year, we're not waiting until 2030. This year, we'll have 30% of the Colombian soil and in the Colombian maritime areas being declared a protected area. So this puts us also in a leadership role in the Global Pledge for Nature. So Colombia is taking the lead of being carbon neutral, nature positive country. And I think we're doing this in the balance that is also to keep on using regular energy by making the transition. This has to be not be used by uh, ideology or politics. This has to be based on science. And I think this transition is making a strong sense in Colombia. People feel very proud about this advance. And I think also the international community is seeing Colombia not only as a leader in the energy transition, but also as the country that is going to be the number one producer of green hydrogen in the years to come. Oh, President Duque, you mentioned it there. Critical, the political outlook for the country too, beyond your time as president. Please come back and speak to us in the next couple of months and we'll talk about that too. Vitally important. And thank you for your time once again today. Thank you. Happy New Year for you. <laughs> thank you. The president of Colombia. Thank you, sir. Okay, coming up on the show, empowering women through NFTs. We speak to two female artists and activists who are trying to pry a notoriously male-dominated industry wide open and succeeding after this. Welcome back to First Move. And we've talked a lot about problems. How about some solutions? Tackling the climate emergency and promoting gender equity through NFTs. Code Green is a tech nonprofit that explores ways in which blockchain technology, creative arts, and NFTs or non-fungible tokens can contribute to helping protect the environment and society. And another challenge that the NFT space faces is the lack of female artists. Well, that's where women of World of Women comes in. In a small team behind the highest selling women-led NFT collection in the world, we're talking generating $40 million in the space of two weeks. And fans include Reese Witherspoon and Eva Longoria, among others. Well, now Code Green and World of Women are teaming up for an NFT auction featuring 12 very special female artists. And two of them join now. Joining us, co-founder of Women of World of Women, I keep getting that back to front, and NFT artist Yam Karkai, and Inamoja, Malian French musician, climate activist, and co-founder of Code Green. Ladies, welcome. I'm so excited. I keep stumbling over my words. Um, Inna, I'm going to come to you first. Um, hugely important. You're launching the NFT auction today. And I think the key part of this is 70% of the proceeds are going to go to charities that you specifically have identified as needy. Talk me through why this is so important. Hi, Julia. Thank you so much for having us. For us, it was really important to give back to climate solutions, and we decided to give it to women-led solutions all along the Great Green Wall. And uh, our auction is going to be uh, carbon net negative, so that is something that's really important to us, and it's going to be hosted on SuperRare. For us, uh, being involved in climate activism for the past decade to me it was really important to harness the power of creativity and uh, and the nft space and uh, give the tools and empower people in the space to become leaders in sustainability 
Yeah, and as I mentioned in the introduction, women are desperately underrepresented in this space, but that is changing. Yeah, I'm coming here because I think you need to explain what, for people who haven't seen this or have not read about it, what World of Women is. And, and you can explain why being part of this now is so important, because this is the first time you said, look, we're going to give money away from the proceeds of this and tying up with charities. Of course. Um, yeah. So World of Women was born specifically because of this problem that we are um, seeing in this space where there's not enough representativity and um, females uh, put in the spotlight. And uh, so we started as a collectible project of 10,000 art pieces representing diverse women from different backgrounds. And now we've really become a community of like minded people that share the same values and want the same uh, objectives to be achieved achieved in this space, but also the world, uh, which is why from the beginning we've been uh, allocating money from initial sales to support uh, causes um, for women and girls, but we never had the opportunity until now to do something for the environment. And this is something we've always wanted to do, not just because we're an NFT uh, company, but because we think that all companies should be doing um, moves for the environment. Um, whenever they can. So for us, it's super exciting to be having this uh, first activation with Ina and Code Green uh, to be such an impactful collaboration um, and the beautiful fusion of cura art curation and environmental causes. So we're super happy. And come in here, just give us a sense of who's going to benefit. What are we talking about in terms of communities and the charities that this will support? Because if people are going to buy this art and they need to know that 70% of the proceeds are going to go to these charities, who specifically is going to benefit? So the people uh, who are going to benefit are uh, women-led solutions all along the Great Green Wall. And we chose three networks, 1T.org, Uplink Challenge, and uh, Great Green Wall Frontline, and the She Global Alliance. And for us, it was really important because uh, we need to empower women and girls because they are the most vulnerable people in the world in general. But in places uh, where people are living on the front line of climate change, we really need to give them uh, support and also financial support to be independent and uh, make a living. Yeah, and some of this artwork is just incredibly beautiful. Um, yeah, and there'll be people watching this going, um, how does it feel to have stars like Eva Longoria, um, Shonda Rhimes, buying your art, showing your art. And I believe it. in the beginning you were selling these things for $200, $300. And some of them are now going for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you weren't sort of crypto savvy before you began doing this. This was about artists and changing the economics, I think, for artists and, and for yourself as well as both of you as, as artists being represented in this sale. How does that feel, Yam? Um, you know, it feels really unrealistic. I think that is the definition of how you feel when these things happen. Um, but it, it is also very exciting because, um, you know, celebrities and powerful women have this power to... Um, to get their communities involved in things that they believe in and by them supporting us it means that they're also supporting the change that we want to see in this space and so it's just promoting more and more people to get interested in nfts on the technology behind it and on what we're trying to achieve so it's really incredible <laughs> i mean it's astonishing in a come in here too because there's a lot of talk in the crypto space that the nfts or non-fungible tokens are in a bubble that perhaps some of the value that's being created here is not real. How do you feel about some of those criticisms? And is, I guess, the pushback on that, look, many people are going to benefit from these sales. 
irrespective of whether you see value or well, not. Yeah. Well, I hear it. I hear it and I understand it. But I really believe that NFTs are here to stay. Uh, to me, the feeling of being uh, in the NFT space is like being at the beginning of Internet, even though I was really young at that time. It is something that's super new and a lot of people don't believe in them. But I think uh, this is something that we are going to see uh, become more and more mainstream. And also, it's the first time that I see so many artists really thriving and uh, also getting royalties for their work. Because as a musician, I'm used to having royalties on my music, but as a visual artist, that is something that's completely new. So um, I think uh, this is something that is going to become a revolution for artists. This is such a great point. Um, ladies, come back and talk soon and good luck with the auction. And uh, fingers crossed that people are as excited about this as they are about World of Women in Amoja and Yam Kakai. Ladies, thank you so much for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for having for us. Move. <laughs> You'll be back. Thank you so much for having us. <laughs> thank you. More to come. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. The stock market sell-off is deepening on Wall Street. Let me give you a look at what we're seeing. The S&P 500 briefly falling into correction territory. So that's down 10% from recent highs. The Nasdaq currently down well over 2.2%. As you can say, it's fallen some 17%, in fact, for most recent highs. Market weakness today ahead of this week's Federal Reserve meeting, as well as growing nervousness, I think, in the West over Russia's troop buildup near Ukraine. The dollar-denominated Russian RTS stock index falling 8% in recent trade to energy markets responding to the growing European tensions as well. Natural gas prices currently up more than 4%. So that just gives you a sense of the broader tensions and concerns that we're seeing. And finally, on first move, next time you're checking your emails, before you automatically empty your spam folder, you might want to check it first. A Michigan woman is $3 million richer because she did. Laura Spears purchased a mega millions ticket online through the lottery website. And while searching for an email a few days later, lo and behold, she found a stray message from the Michigan lottery informing her that she was a winner. Spears says she plans to share the winnings with her family and retire early. I have to say, if I saw an email saying I'd won the lottery, I'd probably definitely assume it should be in my spam box. But hey, always best to check. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. As always, you can search for at CNN. In the meantime, stay safe. Connect the world with Larry Madoa is next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.